The reading from today, for today comes from Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, don't, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Scott. That last verse, Romans 8.1, one of the great verses in Scripture. Wouldn't mind talking about that all day, but actually we're going to talk about David and his most grievous sin today. Um, first of all, a couple of other announcements. I want to remind you that uh, we have a fifth Sunday in October, so that would be October 30th, which means we're going to be doing baptisms on the patio on October 30th. So if you have been thinking about getting baptized or want to get baptized and uh, uh, want to tell us about that or at least want to have a conversation, please email myself or Stephanie Shoemate and we will make sure that we, uh, we have the conversation with you or set you up to uh, be baptized. So that'll be Sunday, October 30th. Uh, the night before on October 29th is of course Fallapalooza and I wanted to remind you about that. Um, we're going to have a chili cook-off and I think a cornbread cook-off um, and there might be one pan of enchiladas I don't know I'm still working on that um, <laughs> in case you don't want chili or, or cornbread and they keep telling me there's going to be a dunk tank and I'm the only one who's going to be dunked so anyway that that's all going on so we are in this uh, in the midst of this series called we want a king we're looking at uh, King Saul we've already done him we've been looking at uh, David, and today is the last week that we'll talk about David during this 22-week uh, series. And so last week what we talked about was David returning to Jerusalem after his kerfuffle with, with uh, Absalom, and his reign is now backed intact. And, and so next week we get to start on Solomon and talk about his famous wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. And the rest of the series prior to Advent will be on King Solomon. But today, what we look at, this last week in David, is uh, at least in terms of 
human consequence, um, David's most grievous sin. And the reason uh, that this happens is because David decided to take a census. And I know some of you are thinking, wait, uh, that, that was a that's his most grievous sin? He, he counted people? Yes, that was his most grievous sin. And we're going to explain that. Uh, first, what we're going to do is, is we'll briefly summarize chapters 21 through 23, which again are the chapters we kind of skip over to get to chapter 24, which is the last one in 2 Samuel. Uh, and then we will zero in on chapter 24 with this census business. So uh, chapter 21 is kind of an odd chapter. It would be nice if we had more time with it. Uh, there's a lot of question about the chronological order of these last four chapters, and I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about that. But specifically, chapter 21, uh, people aren't exactly sure when it happened, but it likely happened um, before all of this stuff with Absalom took place that we looked at last week. Uh, like I said, we're going to run into this chronology problem with all four of these chapters uh, that seem to be disparately placed at the end of the scroll, sort of in no, no specific order, just very randomly. Um, but as we read these chapters, I think we'll begin to see that the narrator of these chapters has a purpose in relating these particular stories in spite of their apparent chronological disparities. And here's that purpose. David is a man after God's heart. David knows God and, and knows that he is sovereign and he trusts his power. And yet, even in the midst of that, he has all of this cognitive understanding of who God is. Uh, David has issues. Anybody ever feel like that yourself? Okay, yeah, absolutely. He has issues. He has challenges, he has problems, but he also has victories and he has life celebrations, just like all of us do. So uh, David has bouts with his own way of doing things. He has many bouts with sin and disobedience, but then he also has this ability to, uh, to confess and to repent uh, very quickly. And so uh, the purpose of these narratives is to show that even a person as great as David is a sinner who rebels against God and who desperately needs a savior. David is a good person who does a ton of bad things, and therefore he needs a savior. His good isn't going to outweigh his bad. It's not like the PGA cut. He's not hoping to get into heaven because, because he's done more good things than bad things. He is in desperate need of a savior, just like all of us are. At any rate, here's what chapter 21 narrates. During Saul's reign, so before David, Saul persecuted a people group known as the, uh, the Gibeonites. And Saul did this even though it was the Lord's will that the Gibeonites be left alone. You know, Saul always had his own way of doing things. And so David decided he was going to do something about this to make it right with the Gibeonites. And so he asked the Gibeonites, he, just, he left it in there, he said, what can I do for you? And they replied that they did not want money or goods, but rather they wanted seven men from the line of Saul so that they could hang them. And so David obliged. Now, Mephibosheth was not one of them, and, and I would love to be able to take some time to unpack this more fully, especially in light of David's promise to Saul uh, towards the end of Saul's life that he was going to take care of everybody from Saul's line. But here, it appears as though David gave up seven of Saul's people, at least uh, somehow distantly related to Saul, 
to make the Gibeonites uh, happy. Um, so then in the rest of the chapter, I find this interesting as well, the Israelites go to war again several times against the Philistines. And guess what? Goliath the giant had some offspring, some sons, and Goliath's kin are bent on killing David because David's the one who killed Goliath. But David is protected and saved from four of Goliath's kids, four of his offsprings. They are known as the descendants of the giant, and those four are killed, including one honking big dude that had six toes on each foot and six fingers on each hand. Now, those of you who are Office fans must be thinking, well, Creed must be a descendant of, of Goliath, if you know that reference. If you don't, maybe Jesus will point that out to you someday. So, so that's chapter 21. Then there's chapter 22. Again, not sure about the chronology of chapter 22, but based on how chapter 22 is introduced, it certainly took place even several years earlier than that, probably while Saul was still alive. And in fact... Um, the psalm that, that, that is, is really the parallel psalm to what David does in chapter 22. He sings a praise to the Lord. It's Psalm 18. That psalm is introduced by talking about uh, how this is a psalm that David wrote when, when, Saul, uh, when, when, when God spared David's life in front of Saul. Saul had a chance to kill David. And so Saul was probably still alive. I'll give you just a taste of this song of praise. I'll read verses 2 through 7 from uh, chapter 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. And then in chapter 23, again, this chapter seems it's out of order, and, and it comes to us as the last words of David... And, and then commends uh, all the men who helped David during his reign. But then we have chapter 24, which is a whole new event after David's supposed last words, which we're going to focus on in just a minute. But I want to talk about how uh, these chapters are out of order. Now, chapter 24 probably came right after the, the whole war with Absalom, in case you're wondering about the chronology there. Uh, but let's talk about that chronology in the Old Testament. I've run into this a number of times. Uh, people say, how can we trust the Bible if the chronology is off in the way that historical books are supposed to be written? Now, that's a fair question, but you need to understand that that question is rooted in contemporary Western mores and convention. So for us, for probably a few centuries anyway, you and I have valued perfectly timelined histories. That's how we prefer to read and study history. But we have to remember that the primary purpose of Scripture is not to present a years later Western convention of history, but to tell God's story God's way. 
In other words, you and I cannot project our sensibilities on a text that does not value our sensibilities, especially when our sensibilities came millennia after this text was even written. And again, that's just, the, that's just part of the proper study and understanding of literature and rhetoric, understanding culture and context so that you can piece these things together the way they were written, the way they were intended, and for the purposes that they were intended in their particular situation. So what happens in chapter 24 that's so bad? And it's pretty bad for David. And as a result, it's very bad for God's people. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 9 of 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aor from from, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the city of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, they were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, warriors, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So David now knows that he has a million 300,000 fighting men at his disposable, disposal. But verse 1, right out of the gate, there's something, it just, it doesn't make, God stirred up David to do this. God stirred him up. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we have the parallel uh, record of this story. And there it says that Satan inspired David to do this. So what gives here? We're going to have to ask some questions because this should raise our hackles. But let's be sure we understand what's going on here. We, we need to understand, first of all, that God never does evil himself. If you're wondering about that, James chapter 1 in the New Testament is very helpful here. But God is willing to use other moral agents, such as Satan, to stir up people for his purposes. And if you're not sure about that, read the book of Job, and you'll see that in Job. So verse 1 is a, is a type of shorthand for this. But, but why was God's anger kindled against his people? Yet another good people, uh, another good question, you people are good readers. And here's why. David has been building and building and building his army. We need to understand that David went from a no-recruit army in 1 Samuel to a constricted army in 2 Samuel. And so David was actually now violating what kings were expressly forbidden to do in the Torah, in God's law, which was you're not supposed to have too many military uh, warriors or military resources. You're not supposed to build up these big armies. Now, why would God say that? Because God says the Lord goes before his people and provides 
the victory. That's why you don't rely on your own army. So there's this book called Judges in the Old Testament. There are two books in the Old Testament that are rated um, NC-17, uh, Judges for Violence and Song of Solomon for Sex. So some of you are like, I'm going to read Song of Solomon this afternoon. Anyway, um, but Judges is a very violent book. Anybody remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges? So Gideon, this frightened little guy, God calls him to fight the Midianites who is an evil and fierce enemy of Israel. And the Midianites have 135,000 fighting men in their army. And so Gideon goes out and gathers up as many as he can in Israel, 32,000. So they're still outnumbered four to one by the Midianites. But God would not let Gideon go into battle until he had whittled his horses down to how many? 300. He kept telling Gideon, nope, you got too many. He's got 10,000. Nope, still too many. Whittled it down to 300 fighting men. And then God gives Gideon this amazing victory. See, it wasn't wrong necessarily for David to have an army. It was okay that he had an army. It wasn't even necessarily wrong for David to take a census. You read through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you see that it's okay to take a census, but rather... What is your motivation for the census? That's the key to this. What's the motivation for David taking the census? And his motivation was a lack of faith in God and insecurity. He felt insecure unless he had a bunch of people surrounding him who could protect him. And that showed a lack of faith of God. That David continued to actively and obsessively increase the numbers of his army and to find solace in those numbers is a clear indication that David had a false god and was not trusting in the one true God. In this moment, David was shifting his faith and trust from God to men. And in, and in doing so, he's violating the first commandment. He hadn't even gotten to the second through the tenth commandment yet. He's violating the very first one. And finally... What's God trying to accomplish with this event that ends up taking the lives of tens of thousands of Israelites? That's another good question. We cannot be 100% sure, but it appears that this is a lesson that we as God's people really and truly need to put our faith into God. We need to put our faith in the Lord. Are we going to put our faith in Jesus? Or are we going to put our faith in this tangible worldly stuff that frankly often seems way more reliable than Jesus? That's the question, because it takes faith. So, Joab, who is also used by God as a part of this lesson, he warns David not to do this. This is the one time, it seems, in Joab's life where he's acting uh, not impetuously and impatiently. He's actually trying to help uh, David. So he warns David not to do this, and David will remember this lesson, I think, much better, having Joab warn him against it in advance. And, and there's three excellent points that Joab makes in his warning. Number one, he says, David, you're putting your faith in worldly things and not in God by doing this census. So David is, has become the person who says, yeah, 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 I get it. You know, God is great, and I have faith in him, but I would just, yes, God but I would just feel so much more secure if I had a little bit more money in savings or I had a better degree from a better college or I had more followers on social media or I had more Cheetos in my reserve inventory. That would be an important one. So here's the second thing. 
he says, David, these men that you are going to count and you're going to treat them as yours, they're not yours. These men are the Lord's. They're his. David, this is foolish to think of these men as yours. This is not going to end well, David. And then third, and I'm just paraphrasing here, David, uh, Joab says, and, th and doing this, this act of sin is not going to be paid for by you, but it will be paid for by the very people you are called to serve. You're the shepherd, they're the sheep, the sheep are going to pay for this. This will devastate the people of Israel. You'll be responsible for much suffering of your people, and it's going to be much worse than, than us actually losing a war. It'd be better for you to go to war and lose the war than what you're about to do. And all of it is wise counsel from Joab. So David has a chance, like Saul had a chance with the priests of Nob, if you remember that story, to listen to wisdom and not do an evil thing. Tyler Thompson during this series keeps talking about the idea of how God provides us with off-ramps, right? Off-ramps from our sin, warnings before our sin, people who will speak into our life and say, that's probably not a good thing to do, people giving us wisdom. And David has this opportunity from Joab, and he does not listen. You know, I'll just tell you a little, little inside baseball here. Pastors get asked for a lot of counsel, and it is our privilege and our honor to be asked. But it's also amazing how often it's not really counsel that people want from us, but rather they want a pastor's affirmation of what they have already decided to do. They've already made up their mind. They're just hoping that the pastor will say, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then they suffer some dissonance when we say, ah, that may not be the best thing for you to do. So, this is uh, 10 through 14. Here's what happens. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. So David, immediately after this was done, he, he felt like he needed to confess and repent. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to the one who sent me, which is the Lord. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So uh, David, David's godly instinct, I know it was late, but his godly instinct was still intact. He sensed that he had sinned against the Lord. But I want you to notice a couple of things about this exchange. First of all, Gad comes with three uh, possibilities that David can select as a consequence for his sin. None of them are anything really happening to David. They were more happening to his people. Maybe that second one was more about David than anything. But still, it was more about the people were going to have to pay for this. And, and, and then uh, here's, here's the, uh, uh, the other thing. Uh, God was allowing David to choose what the consequence was going to be, but it was like choosing between three of the worst things you could possibly choose from. I mean, what would you choose in the midst of this? Well, read verse 14. Let me read it again. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. So here's what David is saying. Uh, 
it's going to be one or three. I don't want two. I don't want to be pursued by my enemies and have the Israelites pursued by our enemies for three months because I don't trust them. They're not going to be merciful to us. At least we have a shot at mercy and grace from God in the midst of this. Many people say that verse 14 is actually the key to this entire chapter because of that. So David understands God's sovereignty in that he knows that if God's the one who can cause the consequence of his sin, that God is also the one who can save him from his sin. So he understands God's sovereignty. And I want you to think about the shades of Jesus here. This is really good. Jesus in the New Testament was not shy about pointing out sin and warning us of the eternal consequence of our sin. And yet at the same time, Jesus was adamant that he is the only salvation that we have from sin. The only salvation we have from sin. And so then the next three verses, 15 through 17. So the Lord set a, sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. So he picked number three. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. It's just the men. It doesn't include the women and children. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, in other words, to finish off Jerusalem, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the uh, threshing floor of Aranua, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So this is just devastating. The punishment is doled out, but God then also relents. And we need to understand, again, from Deuteronomy 32, it's God who avenges, not us. But then again in verse 17, David makes the right call. Unfortunately, and perhaps even more painfully for David, it is the people who pay for his. He says, don't quit, quit harming the people. Let me pay for it. But ultimately, it's the people who pay for his sin. The last eight verses of this chapter. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranua, the Jebusite. So David went up to uh, up at Gad's word, and the Lord commanded. And when Aranua looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aranua went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aranua said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor for you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aranua said to David, let my lord the king take up an, uh, an offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing floor sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aranua gives to the king. And Aranua said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aranua, No, but I will pay, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David brought the, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So uh, an important epilogue to this narrative, I think. Uh, this site where this happens is actually the future site of the temple, which we're going to 
read about and study about in the next uh, four or five weeks. And, and again, I, I really love this, what David says, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Yeah, because that's not really a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. You, you know, an offering that costs nothing is no offering at all. So this is a tough chapter for David. Anybody disagree? <laughs> Very tough chapter. And for his people, by the way. Consequently, it's his worst sin. But there are some positives as well, because even though David is a sinner like us, he leans into God's wisdom several times. Here are four things that, uh, positive things that I think we can take uh, from this. Number one, David is better late than never. Better late than never, his conscience convicts him of his sin. That's in verse 10. So the Holy Spirit was working even in the wake of his sin. And then in verse 14, David finally listens to the wise counsel and leaves the punishment up to God and his grace rather than trying to control that. Most of us, you know, we, we sin, and then we try to control the consequences of our sin. Maybe we should just leave that in, in the hands of God. And then number three, from verse 17, David intercedes on behalf of the people for God to punish him and not the people, so David's willing to take his medicine for his sin. And then number four, from verse 24, David insists on paying Aranua for his sacrifice. And all four of these items are driven by a deep and abiding knowledge of the wisdom of God. And I think to wrap up, I think all of this brings up an interesting point of tension in our current context, in our current culture. Let me just ask a question. Are you and I basically good people who maybe just need a little help from God every now and then? Or are we sinners who are saved and transformed by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? Okay. The, the yearbook answer, of course, is the second one. And that's my spoiler alert. It's the second one. We are desperate sinners. And we desperately need an intervention, a supernatural intervention from God by his son to save us. And the problem is, is that if we believe that we're basically good, which most people in our culture believe, and many Christians also believe the same thing, basically good, just a few little issues, okay? The problem is, is that it makes, us, it, makes it so easy for us to talk ourselves out of our desperate need for Jesus. Well, well, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, yeah, that's not that big. I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm really weighted over here on the good side. I'm doing just fine. And here's an example. And I just, I want you to hang with me on this because I know this example is extreme, but I think it really points out just how deeply inculcated this idea that we're basically good is in our culture and with most people, including people who claim to know Jesus Christ. Has anybody ever heard of the BTK serial killer? So I know that most of you think of me as a pastor and a theologian. I'm actually an expert on serial killers. If you ever want to know about serial killers, just come and talk to me and I'll help you with that. Okay. Anyway, BTK, Dennis Rader, was a serial killer that was active from the late 70s until the early 90s in Wichita, Kansas, until they finally uh, caught the guy. I don't know if you've ever read about him or heard about him. Okay. So this is what's interesting about Raider. When they finally caught him, when the detectives were interviewing him, and then later after he was convicted and he was serving his time in prison, which, by the way, he died in prison, 
When he was serving his time in prison, uh, two different psychiatrists went in there and wanted to interview him so that they could know a little bit more about the mind of a, of a serial killer. Uh, one of Raider's constant mantras that he said all the time was, I'm just not sure I understand why I, a good person, I'm really a good person, could do these bad things. I, just a few little bad things that I did because I'm really just a good person that did a few bad things. He said this all the time. This is, this is just inculcated in him. So first of all, Raider had bought into this ridiculous cultural myth that all people are basically good. And then second, it's really disappointing because if you know about Raider, he claimed to be a devout Christian who knew the Bible, supposedly, and was an esteemed leader in his church in Wichita. People were completely flabbergasted when they heard that he was the BTK killer. Okay, So, some of you may be wondering, why did Scott read from Romans? Okay, well, I'm going to read from Romans again. I'm going to read that passage again. I think this is one of the most important passages in the Bible for us to understand who we are, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that, uh, with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see that in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then here you go, the key verses, this is it right here. These three verses, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is, this is a person at his desperate last possible grasp. I can't do it myself. My morality isn't good enough. I need God to intervene. That's what Paul's saying. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. But... Verse 8, I hate this chapter break right here. There shouldn't be a chapter break right here. But there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that? We're not basically good people doing a few bad things, killing people, committing adultery. We're not. We're desperate sinners in need of God's intervention. And because of his love and his grace and his mercy, he's done that for us through Jesus Christ. And Paul says that right here. Those three verses should be something that all of us should embrace and think about and read every single day. And just remind us ourselves every day. Preach ourselves the gospel every single day. You don't need me to preach the gospel to you. Just read these three verses. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will save me from this wretched body. Here you go. Uh, a little more about Raider. I know you want more about Raider, so a little bit more about Raider. So he himself talks about how 
he had something in him, in his soul, and he called it Factor X. And so he says that Factor X would rise up in him every time he wanted to do something bad. Every time he wanted to, do, to kill or do other things. And there were many other things. Uh, Dennis Rader was an expert at what's called creepy crawling. Has anybody ever heard of creepy crawling, what creepy crawling is? The Manson family used to do creepy crawling thing too. It's, I guess it's a serial killer thing. It's where you quietly break into somebody's house at night. You don't steal anything, but you move the, furnitures, uh, the furniture and the bric-a-brac around so that when people wake up in the morning, they're bumping into furniture, they're looking and they're going, hey, that lamp was over there yesterday, what's going on? That's called creepy crawling. Dennis Rader did this hundreds of times. He would break into houses and do this at night, creepy crawling. He was also a stalker and he would troll people. Even before the internet, he would troll people. So, he had this factor X. He said, it's not me doing it, it's factor X. You ever heard of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? That's the whole idea behind that whole novella that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote. He wrote that in the late 1800s. He was raised in a Lutheran home. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as an allegory of Romans chapter 7. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is this, is this struggle that Paul is having with the spiritual life in his flesh. And in fact, in the novella that Robert Louis Stevens wrote, uh, he quotes from Romans 7. Now, he doesn't say, here's what Romans 7 says, but he's, just re he's talking about how Dr. Jekyll is talking to himself, and he, and he says, hey, I, you know, I, I want to try and do good, but I, the evil lies next to me. And, and if you know the Bible, you're going, oh, he's just quoting from Romans chapter 7. It's an allegory for Romans chapter 7. Here's another one, and I'll lose some of you on this one. But the Dexter novel is the same way. If you've read the Dexter novels or, or you know, watched the show at all, uh, you know that Dexter had a dark passenger, right? It wasn't Dexter doing these terrible things. It was his dark passenger, and he had no control over his dark passenger. Dexter was a good guy. He was a nice guy. Everybody loved him. He used to bring donuts for the entire police force every morning. He was a good guy. He brought donuts, but he's also a serial killer. Well, that was his dark passenger. All of this is Romans 7. All of this is us wrestling with the fact that we want to do good, but we have no ability to do it without the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit filling us. So David, like Paul, and like all of us, we're a picture of Romans chapter 7. And if you're in Christ, you are a picture of verses 24, 25, and 8, 1. Because that's what we need. And I want, to understand, I want you to understand, I know we're not all murderers. I know we're not all adulterers. I don't know if, the, are there any census takers in here? Okay. Anybody doing any creepy crawling? No. But we've all had sin imputed to us. We're all sinners, and that has separated us from God. Here you go. You're not going to like this. There's a little bit of King David and even Dennis Rader in every one of us. And here's why. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We were born into this. Here you go. This is the ultimate and truest statement of I was born this way. Born into sin. I was born this way. Born into sin. And that's Genesis 3 and Romans 5. Read those two chapters juxtaposed against each other which means we need a supernatural intervention by the God of grace, justice, hope, and mercy, and that's the gospel. That's the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to consider as we wrap. In this narrative of David, the sheep die for the sin of the shepherd. And then Jesus comes along and the good shepherd dies for the sins of his sheep. That's awesome. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. That's all I got. Thank you. Amen. So we're going to, well, the band's going to do one more song. We'd love for you to join in and sing with them. It is the infinite song, which is what the album is named after. And while we do that, we're going to take communion together, and then Tyler James is going to come up and benedict us out of here. So if our communion servers would come forward, and if there are any uh, elders, deacons, pastors or staff here who can stand in the wings and be available for prayer or for questions, that would be good too. We're going to take communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it's given for you, foretelling of what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, going to the cross. And then he lifts up the cup with the wine in it. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, do these things in remembrance of me. And so we come to this table. We are proclaiming that we're sinners in need of grace, and we are celebrating that we have that grace from Jesus Christ. So let's come and do that now. without any peak, an ocean without any shore. This is the heart of my King. It goes on and on evermore. A wellspring of wisdom and truth, a river that never runs dry. Path through the woes of this world, a promise. 
promise to walk by my side. He is infinite, limitless, matchless, magnificent, boundless and measureless, perfect in holiness. Words can't explain him, no book can contain him, the greatest of treasures to find. And he's A shepherd who cares for his sheep, a righteous and trustworthy friend, a father who faithfully sees his promises through to the end. Oh, how could I not worship him? He is infinite, limitless, magic. Thank you for being here. Let me read this and benedict us out of here. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Praise God for that. Go in peace. Go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.